In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is all the text I need this morning. I have no need of you. There are many parts, but one body, and no part could stand apart for long. For if one falls apart, all will suffer. Paul is speaking about charismata, gifts, things given and received. We all like gifts, we all like to get, gifts we all like to receive. And when we do, at Christmas maybe, we tend to keep what we get. Take it with thanks, it was yours, now it's mine. And we don't expect the giver to ask to take it back. And the giver doesn't expect to get it back either, or to see it given to someone else. Regifting is that, what we call that. Saves us the trouble of buying, but we live with the fear that we will, we will re-gift the giver with the gift they gave to us. <laughs> That's not good socially, but spiritually, God turns everything upside down. God is in the gift-giving business also. And these gifts, they are not, by the way, called in our text spiritual gifts in Greek, literally, but alternately spiritual things, pneumatikos, and gifts, charismata, are God's to give and ours to get. But after that, God sees the exchange mechanism differently. The gifts God gives are given to be given away. And the gift given is giving itself the capacity to give. So a gift is not a thing, an entity, the gift that keeps on giving, rather. And it starts as a disposition to give, a desire, and then comes the means, the capacity to do so. God first implants deep within us this yearning, not for something, but for to do something, or better, to see something done to see something happen, to see a difference made in this world so that it starts to look like the kingdom of God. Spiritual gifts make recipients the givers. And to receive, you must hear first the voice of the giver, God, calling you to receive and to give. Vocation is another way to put it. A call, and it becomes our calling when we realize that the desire God has set into our heart is ours for the doing. And it tends to look impossible at first, but we take the first step and realize God is doing it too. It's called participation. We are involved in our way. God is doing it in his way, and the two things are ultimately interconnected. Once we take that first step in faith and do something, we discover that God has been pulling all manner of things together to make sure that the thing that's being done happens. But we must be his agents on the ground. And to do that, to set this whole thing in motion, we must take that first step. Now, it doesn't mean that if we step back, God ceases working. 
but it means we lose that sense of participating, of being in step with the Holy Spirit in what God and we are doing. Now, lovely, when we get in step with God, however, is often precisely where we get out of step with everybody else. Paul says in Romans 8, Panta sunerge eis agaton, all things working in synergy, soon together working toward the good. But no good deed goes unpunished by the one that didn't do it. Thus, the emphasis on grace. Grace. Charismata means gifts, not grace. Let's restudy that. There are plenty of ways to get what you want that are ungracious, and if what you would give freely is taken from you forcibly, there is no grace in that either. It's not just about giving and receiving. There are plenty of verbs for gifts in Greek. As Laonidas say in their Greek-English Dictionary of the New Testament, based on semantic domains, which does the simple work of telling you what that Greek word meant to the community that was using it at the time, the verb used in this instant, karitsomai, starts with a goodwill in the giver and ends with gratitude in the receiver. It's how you give that makes it gracious. Gracious giving, grateful receiving. And that is how spiritual gifts are given, with the further expectation that the gift that is given is the gift of giving. The gift doesn't stop with you. You put it to work for others. The potential, the power to do something not for oneself, but for others. The gift is for other people. And to do the thing that others cannot do for themselves. That sounds nice and easy too, doesn't it? <laughs> Not a chance in this world. Now, if God has so graciously disposed his economy such that, as Marx has said, to each is given according to her need, from each according to her ability, her gifting, her vocation, then everything should work well, right? Pandas hunergai, indeed. Marx forgot original sin, and so sometimes do we. It doesn't work like that, as we know. We don't tend to listen to one another, and our predispositions tend to crowd out God's. We tend to hang on to what we should be giving and reject the things we should be receiving from others. And here's the point. It's not just the gifts we reject. We reject the givers of the gifts as well. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, all suffer together. The elusive goal of Catholicity, of one community actually having its arms around everything, having it all, is impossible. We all have a piece of something that some other community has another piece of, and some other, this is true of politics, it's also true of spirituality. And it's true of us as individuals as well. The difficulty comes when we have to go for what we need from the one who has it. Recognize our need. Recognize that they are offering it. We have a way of blocking people out, if you like, of shutting them down for a million reasons, none of them good, and most of them to do with culture and not with God. 
Regardless, if one suffers, we all suffer. If we thwart God's call on one another, they suffer, we suffer, everybody suffers. I'll illustrate this with a little story from when I was a child. It was a winter night, and my younger brother and I were getting ready for bed. My father and mother had been in the living room discussing something earnestly, and we knew not to bother them. But the hour was getting late when my father and mother suddenly stood at the door to our room. They weren't there to say goodnight and do the usual rounds. They wanted to talk to us, seriously, to talk. <laughs> what had we done? My brother and I looked at each other. What, what might they have done, we asked. We didn't have family conferences in the early 1960s. That was the era of Father Knows Best. <laughs> I never want to go back there. So this was ominous. Turns out they had something to ask us. My mother had long felt the desire to go to university, to see how far she could go in pursuit of a degree. I don't know if she had ever finished high school, but her intellect was voracious. She could have attended herself as a secretary and as a seamstress but there was something more inside her. Now we were told she was ready to do that, to pursue that degree. But first she would have to bring her high school grades up, and that would mean night school, long hours away from home and more hours spent by day, away from us, studying. And there was no guarantee that she could do it. And if she did, the demands would only intensify but she wanted to give it a try. But first they wanted to ask us. I'm only now going back to that time in my life more and more. Our archeology span is our teleology. The child is father of the man or the mother of the woman we discover. And that's a place that right now is loaded for me. Partly because I remember the ache, the fear and the anger. Why are you leaving us, is my first question then. And the anger, aren't we enough for you? Aren't we all that you need, Mom? This was simply not done in the 1960s, understand. Young women went to college and became housewives. It didn't work the other way around. Our mother was the center of our universe. She was always there for us, making us the center of her universe. Now, that would not be so. We could look around the neighborhood and not see anyone who'd done anything like that. Our little world took a little hit. But something in us rose to the occasion. With a grace that came from I know not where, we said, I said, we would make it work somehow, not knowing how. And when our father and mother embraced us both all at once, and big hugs were not a part of the 1960s either, I remember having this vision of my brother and me and all of us, all four of us carrying these lanterns into the cold night, the flames flickering but warm and bright. I felt heroic and brave. I think at that moment I took my first step toward becoming a man. I knew now what it was to step up 
from being a child to being a man. And it was heroic and brave. We would be carrying her spirit into the world. She would always be our mother. She would still help to make our dreams come true. But now we would make her dreams come true too. And it would be beautiful if we left it at that, reciprocity. God had more in mind. Sure enough, she went on, finished her high school, then to a BA, then an MA in sociology. She was hired as a counselor by the same college that granted her degree. And she worked to help young women to find the inner and outer resources to succeed in their vocations, their divine callings, in spite of a culture that didn't quite get that concept. When she died quite suddenly, just a few years shy of 60, I was 30, and I'd been out of their lives for 10 years, at least geographically. I remember the pain and the shock. I had so much more I wanted to share with her. But at her funeral, I also remember all these young women that I didn't know coming up to me. And they weren't much younger than I was then, telling me with tears in their eyes what a difference she had made in their lives, and the letters followed. After her death, my father made sure that her name continued. He established scholarships in her name at the college, and he contributed to that counseling and resource center, which was named in her name as well, so that she, through him, could continue to provide young women the means to get a degree. When he died, which is a little less than a decade ago, more young women appeared at his funeral, and then many of all ages with the same stories, how they had been helped by her through him. They had needed her, and she was there for them through him. When she set forth that winter night, the world then would have told her that her place was in the home. Turn around, go back, and only there. You have responsibilities to fulfill. You know where they lie. Thank God for his grace that we somehow together heard something different. I'd like to say that things have changed in the 50 years since then for women. I think I may say there is still work to be done in the world and in the church. I pray that our young women do not have to go it alone. We who are privileged yield our privileges uneasily, unwillingly, and the cold wind of our culture can make us hunker down, rigid, unbending. But the suffering when those who are called and those who are gifted to give cannot give is a suffering that we all share. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I pray for the warm, gentle wind of the Spirit to breathe new life into the church. For all things, panta, sunergai, ice, agaton, all things to work synergistically together for good, for women, for men, for all our good, 
for all who God has called and is calling to share their gifts together. Amen.